Well, we are still in the midst of our Georgia Barnett uh, offering for state missions, and you have your prayer guide in the bulletin uh, for the week of prayer starting today. And I strongly encourage you to, to take that and pray for our, uh, our state missions offering and all that will be uh, done for the gospel as a result of that. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts 2, 46 through 47. This morning is part two of... Uh, cast Your Net, A Culture of Evangelism. We began it last week, and we are continuing it, finishing up A Culture of Evangelism this week. Now, some questions you might ask as we go through these ten yearnings. We went through five yearnings of a culture for A Culture of Evangelism last week. We'll go through the, uh, the, the last five this week. You might be thinking, well, Michael, aren't you... Aren't you leaving out some stuff? I mean, uh, shouldn't we have a, a culture of prayer uh, if we're going to have a culture of evangelism? And shouldn't we have a culture of dependence on God if we're going to have a culture of evangelism? Shouldn't we have a culture of biblical fidelity if we're going to have a culture of evangelism? And to all those questions, I would answer yes, absolutely. Uh, some of those we are, are expected. I mean, we're supposed to be a praying church. We're supposed to be biblically uh, accurate and, f and faithful, and we're supposed to be dependent on God. And they don't go without saying, uh, but they kind of go without saying. I mean, I'll, I'll say them, but, but shouldn't they go without saying uh, that we pray, that we're a praying people? Um, much of those things, prayer and biblical fidelity, dependence on God, those kinds of things are inherent in these yearnings as we move through them. But the reality is, I can't preach the whole Bible every week. Uh, I want to. Uh, I don't think y'all want to sit through it. Um, it. It's a constant frustration that every week I feel like I'm leaving stuff out. That's why you have to come last week and this week and next week and the next week. And you, and you keep coming because, because there's more. Uh, we're never done. And, and so, yes, we need those things if those are questions you're asking as we uh, seek yearn for a culture of evangelism in our church, uh, but we, uh, we'll see some of those as we move through today. Acts 2, 46 through 47, we've been there uh, now for two weeks. We began our launch out series with Acts 2, 41 through 47. Uh, now we're coming back to it, and guess what? Next week, uh, we're going to look at the church and evangelism. And guess where we're going to be? Acts 2, 41 through 47. That's the incredible beauty of Scripture. That every time we go, even to the same passage, God speaks anew. Uh, there's a new application for us. There's something new for us to grab and grasp, hold on to, and to prick our hearts. So 2, 46 through 47, just to remind you what it says. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, just to review quickly what we went over last week, the first five uh, yearnings uh, that we would have for a, a, a culture of evangelism in our church, uh, the first church had it, and that's what I'm referring to this church in Jerusalem. The, the day of Pentecost 
the 120 that were in the upper room together, and then the 3,000 that were added after Peter's sermon when he gave the invitation. Um, that first church had these yearnings, but they didn't, they didn't have the yearnings. I mean, we're talking about having the yearnings so we can have a culture of evangelism. They had the culture of evangelism. If you had gone to church the Sunday after uh, Pentecost, you'd have thought, man, this church has got evangelism down. Well, they, they were a culture, number one, motivated by love for Jesus and his gospel. The, what got those 3,000 was Peter saying, the man, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, and they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? They recognized their sinfulness toward Jesus. They recognized their rejection of him, and they immediately turned to love for him and his gospel. They had that. They had, number two, a culture that was confident in the gospel. They knew whom they had believed, Paul's going to say later, and they were persuaded that he was able to keep that which they had, they had committed to him against that day. They knew what they were a uh, part of. They were not ashamed of the gospel. Number three, the first church had a culture that saw the danger of entertainment. There was no idea of this is going to be uh, frilly and frou-frou and we're just going to have fun and kind of coast through this and we're going to preach messages that make everybody feel good and, and, and just point out the nice parts of the Bible. No, they knew they had just seen their Savior crucified 50 days before. They had heard the crowds cry out to crucify him. They sat here on this day and heard the message And when Paul said, you crucified him. They knew the anguish. They knew that death was not just a part of but integral, integral to their faith. They weren't interested in being entertained. First church had a culture that saw people clearly. Peter's sermon was clear. You crucified him. You are responsible for the Messiah's death. They knew who they were, and they knew who the people around them were. Also knew, though, that they were people God loved. They knew that they were people made in the image of God. They were going to find out as we move through Acts that there was no one outside of the possibility of salvation. Not just to the Jews, to them first, but to the Greeks to the Romans, the barbarians, the Scythians, man, woman, slave, free. It did not matter. They saw people that God loved. And number five, the first church had a culture that pulled together as one. We saw that. They were selling what they could, what they needed to, to help each other. They came together to fellowship, to study the Bible. They were in the temple courts daily. They were a church that was unified. So this morning we pick up on number six. The sixth yearning for a culture of evangelism is a yearning for a culture in which people teach one another. Our, our uh, example verse for that is 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, where Paul told Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Our pattern as a church, if we're going to have a culture of evangelism, our yearning as a church must be to regularly teach the gospel. Discipleship is more than just teaching the gospel, but it cannot be less than teaching the gospel. It must be teaching the gospel 
and other things. But if we just teach other things and exclude the gospel, we are not doing discipleship. We must teach the gospel to each other. We must teach the gospel uh, what is the gospel. We must be able to explain to each other. And this sounds rudimentary and elementary, but if you have difficulty defining the gospel, then that's why we need to teach it to each other. If you have, if someone say, hey, what is the gospel? Uh, you know, it's Jesus loves me. This I know for, you know, the Bible. It tells me so. You know, that, sure, that's, you, you got part of it, but if that's your idea of the definition of the gospel, if you struggle to come up with it, we're failing. So we teach it to each other how to share it. We're discussing as a staff the one little comment Tom made has now become a huge idea for me that I've thrown back on Tom and Amy and said, hey, this is a great idea, let's do it, uh, is having regular e-groups that, that meet for four or five weeks uh, just constantly. Um, uh, and, and, and one of them will be in, in the fall and we'll teach on, uh, uh, let's see, sharing your faith. And then uh, we'll take a break. And then for, uh, there'll be a five-week one on uh, how to study your Bible. Then there'll be a five-week one later on on prayer. And then there'll be a five-week one on trials. And we just we constantly do that because we want to take those opportunities to teach each other even the basics. Because maybe some of us have forgotten the basics. Or maybe some of us never really learned the basics. Uh, we are not, we're, we're not Catholic. We're not... Uh, Episcopalian, we don't have technically liturgy, although if you, uh, there was a time when no matter what Baptist church you went in across the country, you could pretty well guess their order of worship. We say we're not liturgical, but we got Baptist liturgy, y'all. Um, it, it just, we do. We do things a certain way. Even when we do things a different way, we do the th those things a different way every week. Right? I mean, we have our different way of doing it from the other churches, but we still do that every week. We have our liturgy. We, have, uh, we need one of the lessons we can take from our more liturgical churches, uh, our, our more liturgical brothers and sisters, is catechism. Drilling this information, not just for information's sake, because information doesn't save us. Heart change saves us, but we raise... A, a generation after generation of biblically illiterate Christians if we aren't constantly teaching. And then how to disciple, what the gospel is, how to share that gospel, and then how to disciple over and over and over. Y'all, discipleship is not a Sunday afternoon thing at church. Discipleship is not an e-group that we plan and we have some night of the week for a certain number of weeks. Discipleship is a daily constant. Discipleship is among one, two, three, four people getting together and growing in the faith. Whether we put it on a church calendar or not is irrelevant to whether we should be discipling each other. That's what discipleship is. We don't see a discipleship calendar in the Bible. Thus saith Paul, go thine therefore and maketh thou a calendar that saith 
every day that should be a discipleship day and set apart an hour that will be given unto the people where that by they may be discipled. That's nowhere in there. Not even in the King James Version. We disciple each other. That's what discipleship is. It is a relationship. We saw it in the first church. They met daily. They were regularly with the apostles, sitting under the apostles' teaching. They were constantly being discipled. See, our, our pattern uh, can be to teach the wrong things sometimes. And I don't mean the wrong things as in we teach heresy necessarily. Uh, we can, you know, swing that direction if we're not careful. But we just teach the wrong things. We can uh, teach the wrong way to do things. We can teach uncertain ideas, uh, uh, incom incompatible ideas, or, or, or not, even, not even intentionally that. We get into a rut, and we, we do the wrong thing or the ineffective thing for so long that it becomes a way of life taught over and over. What do you mean, Michael? Well, I hope I'm not going to call anybody out in particular, but I've heard this from a couple of different committees in my one year and uh, one and a half months here, uh, that what happens with committees is you rotate two or three people off every year and after a while the 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 or or this next year the two or three people that come on come in they don't they maybe they've never been on that particular committee and they sit and they listen and 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 they see certain things are done a certain way okay that must be the way we're supposed to do it and then they're the uh the amateurs the uh not amateurs the uh novices thank you uh, rookies, that's, um, you know, always football, right? If I'm having trouble coming up with an, uh, uh, a word, it's probably related to football somehow. They're the rookies, and they're looking to the veterans, and then the veterans retire after a, a year or so, and these rookies are now the veterans, and they say, we've already, this is the way I was taught to do it, so this is the way we do it. Okay, and they teach the new rookies, and on and on and on. And what I found in the, a couple of the committees was people were beginning to look at their job description and say, we don't do that. We're not supposed to do that. That's not the way we're supposed to do that. I mean, it's all written down, but because it was just done that way, that was what was taught. So, folks, it's not that we don't teach each other. It's just that we have to be careful about how we teach each other, and we need to focus on what is important, what we should be teaching to each other. They taught each other the gospel. First church in verse 42 devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So as we teach, as we come together, as we seek to have a culture where people teach one another, y'all, it's, it's not just about me up here on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night. It's not just about your Sunday school teacher on Sunday morning or your e-group leader during the week. It's not just about the Awana teachers or any other opportunities you have. It's about all of those opportunities, but you are also all responsible to teach and to disciple each other. It is a shared responsibility among the church to disciple. And as we do that, we see the first church do it, and we see that we must always go back to the Bible for what we teach or do. The, the people sat under the apostles' teaching, they sat under the word of God, and then they taught each other. So they knew what they were teaching before they started. Number seven, we must yearn for a culture that models evangelism. First Chronicles 16, 24 says, Declare his glory among the nation. 
his wondrous works among all peoples. Let me ask you folks, what is more glorious than what Jesus did on the cross? We can talk about creation, and yes, absolutely. I mean, we can go to the Grand Canyon or Death Valley or uh, Mount Everest or uh, you know, oh, any of the natural wonders of the world. You can go all over the earth. You can look into space. You can see incredible things, and you can speak of the glory. Creation speaks of the glory of God. But the one thing that speaks most highly of God's glory is that he would become a man and die for me. That speaks of a wonderful God. We have glorious things to talk about. And we must speak of them. But we certainly must speak of the gospel and share that gospel. What is more wondrous? Chronicle says, declare his glory, his wondrous works. What work is more uh, wondrous than the work of salvation for everybody? Not automatic salvation for everybody just because you're here this morning doesn't mean you're saved just because you took your first breath and and cried when they spanked you on the hiney doesn't mean oh good i get to go to heaven no the salvation must be received the salvation must be responded to but it is a gift for each and every one of you if you will receive it what is more wondrous than that by one man all may be saved by one man god in the flesh we have an incredible work to talk about. We have incredible, uh, glorious God to tell people about. See, the gospel should ooze out of our pores. And I hope that illustration makes you uncomfortable because then maybe you'll remember it. It should permeate everything we do. We should smell of the gospel. Etta used to teach second grade. And... Uh, we would, she would come home, and we'd have something planned for that evening. Dinner, at, at the time, we had one one-year-old. We don't remember what those days are like. Um, but she would come home from teaching second grade, and we'd have plans, and I, I'd ask her, you know, hey, we're going out to eat tonight, or we're going to do something with the church or whatever, and she'd say, okay. And I would say, are, are you, you going to take a shower? No, why? You smell like second graders. Now, if you've ever taught school, if, especially elementary, I mean, it's bad enough in high school, but at least some of them use deodorant and cologne and Axe body spray. Uh, but if you've ever taught school and you've ever been in an elementary school classroom after recess, you need a hazmat suit. It's awful. And she would come home. It wasn't her, but those second graders oozed second grade. Uh, and she would come home smelling like it. Folks, do people recognize by our aroma that we have been in the presence of Jesus? Do we ooze the gospel? It, do we see life as a series of opportunities to share the gospel using our varied gifts? We're not all going to do it the same way. We're not all going to uh, respond to situations and people the same way. But we all are called and responsible to share the gospel. It, it should be a given, an expectation that we are sharing Jesus. I shouldn't have to preach on sharing the gospel. You realize that? I mean, I, I shouldn't have to preach on prayer. I, 
in reality, there's a lot of stuff I shouldn't have to preach on because we are God's children. We are his people. We are called by him. But we're also sinners. We're also failures. I'm a failure. So I have to constantly go back to the Bible and be reminded and told what I should be doing. So uh, I do have to preach on these. We do have to disciple each other. We do have to grow. But it should be a given. See, the first church knew nothing but evangelism. They didn't get together after this sermon with Peter 3000. All right, folks, let's form some committees. Uh, we need personnel. We need uh, stewardship. We need facilities. Wait, we meet in houses? All right, we don't need a facilities committee. Y'all just take care of your own house. Uh, entertainment. We have, we've got a youth committee, right? We get, you know, and, and they didn't get suddenly bogged down in all those, the, the structure, the organization. All they knew was evangelism. We're going to meet together, talk about the, the, the Bible with the, the apostles. We're going to worship together, have some music. Then we're going to tell other people about it. We're going to meet in the temple and talk to people. We're going to have, break bread together, and we're going to invite people to our homes. We're going to talk about the gospel because what else are we going to talk about? We are going to speak of the glory among the, the nations and God's wondrous work among all peoples that we saw today in that sermon that Peter shared with us. The first church, they knew the gospel, verse 46, verses 46 and 47. But praise God, enjoyed the favor of all the people, and every day the Lord added to the church. Number eight, we must yearn for a culture in which people who are sharing their faith are celebrated. Philippians 2, 20 through 22 says, For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. Paul here is talking about Timothy. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know this fellow's proven character. You know who I'm talking about. You know who he, who he is. Paul is celebrating the work of Timothy as an evangelist to the church in Philippi. He's telling them, you can count on this guy. When he comes and he tells you about, uh, the, about Scripture, take it to the bank. He was celebrating what Timothy was able to do, what Timothy did, what Timothy had done over and over and over. He cares about the interests of Jesus Christ. Well, what is the interest of Jesus Christ? Not to give you your best life now, not to make every day Friday for you, but instead to save your hell-damned soul. That's the interest of Jesus Christ. Because if you are not saved, you are already condemned. If you are not a Christian, you are already guaranteed your spot in hell. And Jesus came to save you from that. That is Jesus' interest. That was Timothy's interest. So we celebrate. If you're telling people about Jesus, we want to celebrate you with you with that. We want it to be a culture where we constantly hear about and tell about how people are telling other people about Jesus. Notice not uh, whether or not they actually come to Christ. We want to celebrate that too, but y'all, if you're just willing to step out, missionaries will spend literally years, particularly in Muslim nations, and never see a single convert because it's just such a rocky mission field, stony ground that they have to plow and plow and plow. I mean, it is like plowing concrete to plant seeds in that sort of situation. But we celebrate that they are actually trying. 
They're sharing the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you get on any missionary's mailing list, and I'm on a handful, they will tell you, rejoice with us. Because 3,000 came to Christ? No, because I had lunch with a guy. One guy. And we got to talk about spiritual things. Is that a big deal? Yes, that's a big deal. Or they'll say, I got to actually share the gospel. We got past those questions, past the spiritual things, and I got to share the gospel with them. And we rejoice. Did he come to Christ? No, he's not ready, but we rejoice because he shared the gospel. Acts is all about people sharing their faith. Over and over and over we read of the apostles, the, the missionaries, Paul and others, sharing their faith and nobody getting saved. Or very few people getting saved. In Athens, just a handful said, mm, sounds interesting, let's hear some more about it. Most of them brushed him off. Paul stands before Felix and uh, other uh, high-level officials and shares the gospel. And, and, and one of them even jokes, boy, if, you, if I listen too much longer, you might make me a Christian. Over and over and over they share the faith. And it is a constant celebration that they were willing to, not that people were coming to Christ, though they were, and though they celebrated it, because that's number nine, we'll get there in a second, but they were sharing their faith. It's not prideful, necessarily. Oh, we can use our evangelism as a source of pride, and we can use anything as a source of pride if we, if we let that build up in us, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about prideful sharing. We're talking about this is how God used me today. Celebrate with me. Pray with me that this person, next time I see them, will have thought about what I shared and will come to Christ. We celebrate that. Verse 47, as a matter of fact, is a celebration of people sharing Christ. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It wasn't, it wasn't just you know, folks showing up, hey, by the way, I'm saved. Inherent in this is people going out and telling people about Jesus. And Luke is celebrating that as he writes it here. Number nine, we yearn for a culture that knows how to celebrate and affirm new life. We celebrate the fact that we share the gospel, but even more so, we celebrate the fact when people come to Christ. Colossians 2, uh, 1, 3 through 4, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Paul apparently didn't know these people in Colossae that he was writing to. He had just heard about them. Maybe he had spent some time there at one point, but at least the ones he was writing to, he could only say, I've heard about your faith. And what he does is he celebrates their faith. He celebrates the fact that they had come to Christ. It is always a celebration when someone comes to Christ. It is good and right that when I stand up here and I get to present somebody to you who is coming forward uh, to uh, follow in believers' baptism because they gave their heart to Jesus at some point in the past, that you spontaneously clap. Absolutely. We should clap. We should cheer. You clap when we baptize. Absolutely. We celebrate when that happens. But it's not just a time for celebration. We want to celebrate new life, but we also want to affirm new life. In affirming new life, it is a time for honesty and discipleship. 
Nowhere in Scripture do we see salvation, conversion, without intended discipleship. It may have been on the part of the person who was there and led that person to Christ. It may have been somehow they get passed on to other uh, churches, other folks, but there was discipleship that happened. There was a reason that when Paul went to a new place, he would stay for a year, year and a half, two years, because he didn't want to just swoop in, make converts, and swoop out. He wanted to stay there and disciple them. He wanted to be honest with them and let them know things like, when you come to Christ, life doesn't just suddenly get super easy. If you don't believe it, read Matthew 5. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. In this life, you will have troubles. Count it all joy when you are persecuted to suffer as Jesus suffered. No, no super easy, whoo, I'm done now. Everything's going to be a breeze from here on out. It doesn't work that way. Matthew 5 makes it clear. We need to tell people as they are converted, as they come to Christ, and as we are honest and disciple with them, as we celebrate and affirm their conversion, that there are clear results of true salvation. There are certain things that are now expected of your life. Not just a list of do's and don'ts, but what has come of your life. What, how is your life different? Matthew 13 is a great place for you to read there, the parable of the, the uh, sower and the seeds. And there were four different kinds of seeds that fell. Only one became a true Christian. Three of them looked like it. They had sprouts. They, they spr came up. They, it looked green. It looked good. It looked like the gospel message took. But over time, it was clear that the gospel message did not take. And it was based on results. It was based on fruit. It reproduced 10, 50, 100 fold. That was when the gospel took root. We are honest that there are clear results of true salvation. We're honest that conversion is not proven by a prayer. If, you, if your answer to tell me about when you got saved was, is I walked an aisle and I prayed a prayer and that's the extent of it we need to talk walking an aisle does not save you praying a prayer does not save you those are all components those are all evidences of what God is doing in your life but true conversion you know how the Bible says we can know true converts by their fruit and by their perseverance Matthew 24, 13. Jesus is talking about the end when, when it all hits the fan. When people will be deceived and led astray and, and those who looked good, those who had nice green branches and leaves but had no roots are going to be led astray. They looked like Christians but they weren't because they could be led astray. How do we know that they weren't Christians? Because Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, I'm not attempting at all to create doubt in your salvation. What I want to create in you is assurance in your salvation. I want you to know your salvation, to know 
why you are saved. Not because of a prayer or an aisle or a baptistry, but because of what Jesus Christ did in your heart and how you place your faith and trust in him. It's one of the things we'll talk about in our discovery class, our, our new members class, is how can we be assured of our salvation? How can I know? Well, salvation depends on you to the point that you respond to the gospel or at the point that you respond to the gospel. But nothing else. Jesus says, nothing can snatch you from the palm of my hand. He, we are his. We are secure when we come to Christ. The question is, have you come to Christ? The members of First Church in Acts, they had radical life change. We can go back to the question that Paul asked, or rather the, uh, the statement that Peter made. You killed Christ. And their response was, I'm sure some of them got angry and walked away. Others said, what must we do to be saved? How can we fix this? And Peter said, repent and be baptized. Their life was radically changed. They were new people because of what Christ had done in their lives. And number 10, we must yearn for a culture doing ministry that is risky and feels dangerous. Philippians 1, 12 through 13. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, being in prison, being beaten, punished, what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Later on, he's going to say that even some in Caesar's own household have come to Christ. Would not have been made possible if every day was Friday for Paul would not have been possible if Paul had felt that the only way he could live his best life was if he had a life free from hardship, free from persecution. Instead, Paul says, no, my persecution is a means for the gospel to go out. We must share, we do share a risky gospel. It's risky to confront the prevailing culture. No one wants to be told they're wrong, people. Not you not me. Sir, I don't want to be told I'm wrong about which brand of vehicle I like or which candidate I voted for or whether I like Coke or Pepsi or whether I think Cane's is better than Zaxby's. I don't want to hear those conversations. But you really want to, I almost messed up, you really want to tick somebody off, tell them they're wrong about eternity. Tell them they're wrong about the God that they serve. Ours is a risky gospel. It's risky to confront the prevailing culture. You don't believe me? Stand on biblical truth against homosexual marriage, against homosexuality, against abortion, against divorce, against sin of any kind that the world has no longer called sin and you will see how risky it is to stand against the prevailing culture. It's risky to invest resources we don't think we have. We can't do that. We don't have the people. We don't have the money. They didn't form a stewardship committee in Acts chapter 2. They shared the gospel with nothing. 
they grew the church by 3,000 in one day without anybody voting on a budget. The resources are there if we are doing what God has called us to do. But it's risky to say we're going to take a step of faith on something and to believe that God will uphold us. It's risky to engage our non-Christian neighbors. It's risky to step up to them and say, can I share something with you? Can I? You want to come over for a meal? I'd love to talk to you about church. I'd love to talk to you about Jesus. It's risky. You've you got to live next door to them, right? You've got to see them every day. Every day. And, and they're going to go past your house and say, there's that Bible thumper. There's that do-good Christian. There's that goody-goody. There's that guy who won't leave me alone about Jesus. It's risky. Nobody's cutting your head off. Nobody's burning down your house. Nobody's raping your children in front of you. Can we not take the risk? See, if we as a church, as individuals, can take all the credit for what's going on at our church, for all the good things that are happening, for the people who are coming to Christ, for our ability to minister in various ways, if, if we are not being persecuted in some way, if we are not uncomfortable in the world because of our faith, then we are taking the faithless, riskless way out. If we can claim all the credit, what's God doing? Nothing. Then what are we doing for God? Nothing. It is a risky faith to follow Jesus. It's a risky step to say, we're going to do it his way. We are going to do ministry that feels risky and looks dangerous. Because it is. We serve a dangerous God. I, I, I love, I, I know I've used this quote in here before, but I love what C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and Their Wardrobe, when they were just being introduced to Aslan, who is a type of Jesus for this uh, extended allegory. And the, the kids hear about him, and they're asking, uh, I believe, uh, Mr. Beaver, about this Aslan, and, and, and they hear about him, and they, you know, they describe him in such awe-inspiring terms, and one of them asks uh, Mr. Beaver, is, is he safe? And Beaver says, what? I don't know if he said it like that, but what? Pfft. Child, no. He's not safe, but he's good. We don't serve a safe God. We, don't, we aren't part of a safe faith, but we do serve a God who is good, and we are part of a good faith. So, do we want a culture of evangelism? then there are questions we have to answer. There are things we have to yearn for. Let's review. Do you love Jesus and his gospel? Are you confident in that gospel? Is it truly the power to save, or do you think it's you somehow, your words, your ability? 
Do you believe the church is here not for anyone's entertainment or preferences, but for ministry? Are you here for what the church can do for you or what you can do for Jesus? There's a huge dadgum difference between those two. Do you see people as Jesus does? Lost, hurting, wounded, dead in their sins, but made in God's image, someone who he, he loves, someone that he wants to be saved. Do you see people as Jesus does? Do you see our need to be unified in all things, but especially in our evangelism? Do you see that the first church was so effective in evangelism because they were unified? They had everything in common, not just their stuff, but in their purpose, their goals, their relationships. When that started getting messed up was when Paul had to start writing letters. He'd be getting hand cramps right now writing to all our churches because of what's going on, because of the disunity. Will you teach and be taught? You don't know it all? Me either. Yet I get up here three times a week and teach it. I don't know it all. You don't have to know it all. Discipleship, iron sharpening iron is what Proverbs calls it. You both benefit when we disciple each other. Will you teach and be taught? Will you model evangelism for someone else? Will we be a church where evangelism just happens? Because it's who we are. And somebody sees somebody else doing it and they say, Wow, that wasn't that hard. Will you celebrate when the gospel is shared? Will you look for those opportunities to encourage somebody? I shared the gospel and they didn't come to faith. Man, you shared the gospel. That's what matters. It is not up to you how they respond. It is only up to you to be faithful. And you were faithful and we celebrate. But then... But then, hallelujah, somebody did come to Christ because we shared the gospel. Will you celebrate when the gospel is received? Folks, when people start coming to Jesus and coming to our church, our church isn't going to look like this anymore. There will be people we don't know. People tatted up. People who are drunk on Friday night but are trying to get their lives straight and they're coming here on Sunday morning to find some hope. There'll be people we don't want to sit next to. We sure, certainly wouldn't go to the same places they've gone to, but yet they will come here to find hope in Jesus Christ because they know this is the only place they can find it. Will we celebrate that? Or will we be ticked off because they're messing our church up? Nobody's ever said that. I don't mean to imply that. And finally, will you take risks? Will you confront danger? Will you say, there's nothing that's going to keep me from sharing the gospel? Kill me? Fine, I go to see Jesus. Torture me? It is for this cause that I am being tortured, to share the gospel. Paul was in prison sharing the gospel with his, uh, his guards. I saw one commentator that said it wasn't so much that Paul was chained to the guard, it was that the guard was chained to Paul. The guard had the problem. Paul said, I can preach all day. He's got to sit there. Will you take the risk and confront the danger? Because people, it is a dangerous gospel that saved us. It's a danger 
for me to stand here and tell you that because of your sinfulness, you will die and go to hell without Christ. It's a danger. You know, preachers have been shot in the pulpit before. I'm the perfect target for preaching much less than that. It's a dangerous gospel that says God is holy and just, and he will judge sin. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear justice and judgment. Make me feel good, preacher. I'm going to as soon as you get saved. You'll feel better than you've ever felt. But I can't tell you fluff and marshmallows as you go to hell because all they're going to do is roast and melt when you get there. They will be pointless. God is holy and just, and he will judge sin. The problem is we are on the receiving end of that judgment. We are willfully sinful and fallen. And we can do nothing to earn our salvation. We are destined for everlasting torment and judgment. That is our end, and that is our only end, if not for Jesus Christ. Jesus, the perfect Son of God who took our place, took our sin on the cross, dying for all people, rising again three days later to prove his promises were true. We are doomed for hell, but Jesus. And we can have that salvation. That dangerous gospel, the dangerous truth is that salvation is only given through Jesus Christ. There aren't many roads to heaven. God's not on top of a mountain, and each religion is a road that reaches the top at some point. It does not work that way. Every road eventually leads down, has dead-ended in hell, except for the road led by Jesus Christ, paved by Jesus Christ, and it is narrow, and it is difficult, and it is dangerous. But if you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in him, you will be saved, and then you live for him. And you're his, and that will never change. You will never be snatched from his hand. If you experience salvation today, you will not lose that salvation. That is the biblical truth. So what's your decision today? Will you accept, believe this dangerous gospel? Your opportunity is now. Trust Christ and know salvation through him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can know this salvation. Thank you that you have worked through your son for us to experience the joy that is knowing our eternity is secure with you. Lord, may we always follow as believers. May we never waver. We will sin. We will fall. But God, may we always return. God, thank you that our account is clean before you. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, if we have trusted in him for our salvation, our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. It is as if we have never sinned. God, thank you for that. Lord, I pray for somebody this morning who has never responded to the gospel. Oh, maybe they've walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, gotten dunked. They've joined a church. They've done a number of things. Maybe they've never done any of those things. But today, they know if they were to die, they would go to hell. And they would spend an eternity separated from you. Lord, I pray this morning that they would respond in faith to the salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ. And that it would be clear in their hearts that they have trusted him. 
God, may we respond to you as we have this time of invitation and response. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's your decision today? Maybe you do need to trust Christ. Maybe believer, church member, you need to yearn for a culture of evangelism for our church. Maybe you've jotted some things down and you, you need to go over them. So maybe you want to pray. Maybe you want to pray here about those things. How can you be a part of changing the culture of our church to a culture of evangelism? Maybe you want to join our church. Uh, we're having our new members class, our discovery class this evening. We'll do it again in October. For anyone who is interested in joining our church, you have to go through that before you can do it. Maybe you want to be baptized. We're going to be baptizing November 1st. We're, we don't often set up a particular date, but right now we are setting a particular date as a celebration Sunday uh, for baptism. And you want to follow in baptism and join our church. You need to come to this class either tonight or in October and be a part of that. Whatever your decision is this morning, however God is working on your heart, as we stand and we sing, you respond as you do business with God.